Hello and welcome. Oh, I just got Cashew on my microphone. Hold on a second. Hello and welcome. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper, and I'm David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, the only show that starts with eating nuts and then talks about favorite nuts but isn't actually about nuts. At least it's the only show that I can think of. My favorite nut, at least for snacking, cashews, which I was just eating. All right, today we have science expert, evolutionary biologist Dan Riskin on to talk about CRISPR gene editing stuff. It's going to be interesting, but probably I'll just derail him as usual and we'll talk about stupid stuff. He's one of my favorite people to talk to, so let's bring him here henceforth. I actually don't know what that word means. David Cooper. Well, if it isn't, oh my, it is. And let me just... Bada-bing, bada-boom, scappity-dap-dap. Are you good at scatting? Are you a scat man? I'm more of a fecal pellet guy. <laughs> you know scat man John, right? Uh, I know what scat is. I don't think I know who scat man John is. Oh, he was the pop star. He's dead now, but he wrote that awful song... I'm a scat man, you know the one. Yeah, I do know that one, yeah. Yeah, it's it's his like only hit. Poor guy. Anyway, for a while there, I would go to bars and pretend to be the heir to Scatman John's fortune. And I'd get my friends to tell people, you don't know who he is. I mean, besides the fact that Scatman John was black and I am not black, but that really doesn't matter. No, not for that. In fact, if anything, it helps. Perhaps it does. My brother went to a Guns N' Roses concert last night. And there's this little girl in the band now. She's like 30, but they picked her up when she was in her early 20s. She plays the synthesizers. For Guns N' Roses? For Guns N' Roses. He didn't mention that, but he did mention about how uh, Slash was throwing guitar picks into the audience and how chaos ensued. Yeah, people need their, uh, what do you call it? Their guitar picks. They're called guitar picks. Yeah. No, they're Phil. They're fixed. It's Melissa Reese is her name. She's Melissa Reese. Okay. She's uh she's kind of a startling pick for them. I'm going to share my screen, which is kind of boring for everyone listening, but that's what she looks like. Oh, she's got uh a sort of a a white hair, like a a silver hair. Her hair is dyed sort of a platinum color. Yeah. She kind of looks like, I don't know, like an anime girl. Is that a thing? Do you know what that stereotype is? Uh, well, I, I can see the picture of, she was born March 1, 1990. So she's born after all their hits came out, basically. Yeah. And the, I guess she's 33. She's not really a kid, but they picked her up when she was pretty young. And I don't know. I saw a video of them. I'm like, who is this young girl playing the synthesizer with these crusty old rock and roll dudes? And I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah, it is. But I mean, don't you think it's just a PR move to make people forget that they're misogynist pigs? Well, maybe, but... I, I imagine she also has the chops, so it's sort of the best of both worlds. You get a fucking awesome, creative, youthful injection into your band, and then you don't have to look like a crusty bunch of old white rock and roll dudes. I saw the Pixies not too long ago, and they have replaced their bassist, who is a woman whose name I can't remember, but she started the Breeders. But she left on not great terms, I think, and now they have a new female bassist who sings the female parts and plays the bass and 
that's got to be a tough act to follow because she's sort of an iconic person whose name I don't know. But the fact that I don't know her name doesn't make her any less iconic in the world of rock because that's not my gig. <laughs> Fair enough. Are you a music head, as it were? Yeah, I like music. I really do like music. I really, it speaks to me. I was on, uh, I was on a treadmill. Literally on a treadmill, uh, although metaphorically I'm often on treadmills. But this time I was literally on a treadmill running and I was listening to podcast after podcast. And I was flicking. And I was like, I couldn't find one. Obviously, I'd listen to all of yours. And if I'd, if you'd had any new ones that I could listen to, that clearly would have filled the. You mean all the ones I've taped with you, you've listened to? <laughs> yeah, those are the ones I listened to. But no, I, uh, I then I was like, you know what? I'm going to listen to some Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And so I listened to Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, the Mercy Seat. And then I really got a good run in. And then I was like, now I'm going to listen to Johnny Cash sing that song. And then I was like, oh, Johnny Cash is so good. Like what Johnny Cash does is he makes it sound so easy. He just, I have a deep voice and I just play the guitar a little bit and sing the song. And you're like, hey, there's nothing to this guy. But then you hear him sing the Mercy Seat or that Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. And you're like, oh, he can just do music better than anybody. And you're like, oh, Johnny Cash is amazing. Well, I don't even understand why he's amazing. I couldn't put it in words, but he really is. I hate to quote Malcolm Gladwell to a scientist because I know it's pop psychology. I know it's only half truths or over exaggerated, but it's fun stuff. The book Outliers, this notion of you got to do 10,000 hours of something to be an expert. Mm -hmm. I don't. I think for Johnny Cash, it actually is that effortless and it is that sloppy and it is that easy, but he's just got so many hours of playing and performing behind him. He can just so, show up to a nine inch nails taping and just you know, spit it out like it looks easy and it doesn't even look like he's trying. And, and in some sense, he's not, but he's got tens of thousands of hours of trying behind him to get him to that place. So I don't think he toils over every note, you know? Sure, he doesn't. And yeah, I mean, he's amazingly talented. But the question of whether it was 10,000 hours or whether it was something in his genetic makeup and whether he sounded like that after 8,000 hours and whether anybody else could ever sound like that after 100,000 hours, that's a whole different thing, right? Like the 10,000 hours is a nice just so story, but I don't, I, and it, you know what, it, the, the purpose of, I have no disrespect for Malcolm Gladwell at all. I, I think what he does is great, um, but I, I can disagree with the science behind his stuff, but he's not really necessarily trying to be right. I think he's more trying to push the conversation forward. And so being wrong, but moving the conversation to a new place has a value. And so whether he's right or wrong, the 10,000 hours thing, people still talk about it. And I'm glad he, he brought it up. Yeah. He's not trying to be right. He's trying to be a writer. Oh, oh I did not see that W coming. That hit me out of nowhere. I was in San Francisco in line at a, for a fancy sourdough bread bakery kind of thing where the white people line up around the block. Fine. And I found- Well, hang on. You flew from New York to San Francisco to get a loaf of bread? No, I was living in San Francisco. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I finally got in. There's a big shared table and I'm sitting there having my quiche and I'm next to this guy with strikingly weird hair who looks, well, now I know exactly like Malcolm Gladwell because he's got a real look to him. Yeah, he does. And someone else sitting at the table was like, excuse me, are you Malcolm Gladwell? And he goes, yes. And he's like, wow, I'm such a fan. And then I thought, oh, don't I look like an idiot? I don't recognize the literary guy in the table. Right. Three days later, I'm in line at a coffee shop nearby and who's in line with me? Malcolm Gladwell. And I said, excuse me, are you Malcolm Gladwell? <laughs> he's like, like, you already knew the answer. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I am. I'm like, I'm such a fan. And all the other yuppies in line looked at me like I was a smart person. And then I said, my name's David. And I stuck out my hand to shake his hand. And he looked at me and went, huh. And then he turned back and started having a conversation with his friend. <laughs> really? Yeah. My name's David. Huh. That was how that went. That's not very nice. 
You know, uh, I once heard uh, Malcolm Gladwell interview uh, Jack White from the White Stripes. Mm -hmm. And that's my segue to the time I was in the Nashville airport. And I went to the Tex-Mex restaurant in the Nashville airport. And I was looking at my phone the whole time. And I ate my food. And then I left and I got on a plane. And then when I got on the plane, the guy sitting in the row in front of me was sending a text message from his phone. And so, of course, I look... I have to read his text message because that's a perfect snooping environment. You look between the seats. You see, and his text message says, Jack White was just in the Tex-Mex restaurant at the airport while I was waiting for this flight. And I was like, no, I was probably in the restaurant with Jack White and I missed it because I was looking at my phone, which is actually, I deserve that because I look at my phone way too much. And so anyway, I'm pretty sure I was at the same table as him and just didn't realize it. What would you have said though? Nothing. I have a whole thing about not saying things. I'm very shy when it comes to celebrities, especially if I respect them. It's it's very hard for me. I just, I feel like I have nothing to contribute. So I'm always like, oh, I'll give you your space. Like I was backstage at Craig Ferguson. I was backstage with Weird Al. And Weird Al's like, hey, how did that hit go? And he's like, he just finished his appearance. Like, was it funny? He was like kind of insecure about it. And he was asking people and he wanted reassurance. And I was like, ah. <laughs> like I was so intimidated by Weird Al Yankovic. Oh man. I mean, the guy's a legend. He is a legend. The guy has been relevant for like 700 years. They have found hieroglyphs talking about parodies that he did of one of the pharaohs. I mean, the, how has someone had that much staying power, that much relevance, that ability to parody pop culture for so many years? Well, and he's a good musician and he is funny. Like watching him, because when I did the Craig Ferguson show, it would always be improv -y. And so to watch him and how he did the improv with Craig Ferguson, they had like a back and forth thing where... Uh, he says, I'm glad you finally had me on the show. And then Craig says, wait, I've tried to have you on the show many times. And then they both like turn to this manager guy who's uh, across from them. And they both start like staring at him and like giving him the evil eye and going, you. And then that just became this recurring theme that they kept doing throughout the bit. And it was just to hear them just like find that and then ride it. And I mean, Craig Ferguson's a genius with that stuff, obviously. But he was no slouch himself, Weird Al. And so I wanted I would have told him that backstage. Like, no, that thing where you looked at the guy was really funny. But no, I just kept quiet. Did you ever get to interact with Craig Ferguson's skeleton friend? Yeah, Josh Robert Thompson is also very talented. I did talk to him a little bit backstage and he if you look him up on online and you find some of his stuff. Actually, I just watched one today, an impression of Arnold Schwarzenegger if he interview if he auditioned as Darth Vader for Star Wars. And so he does like the back and forth between Arnold and George Lucas. That's another impression that he does perfectly. Um, he, he has this, uh, this impression of Morgan Freeman that is absolutely bang on. And to see a scrawny white guy do a, do it like have that voice come out of his face is just hilarious. So anyway, I recommend it. If anybody ever wants to go down a YouTube rabbit hole, he's, uh, he's great. What were your interactions with Robot Skeleton? Well, he would every once in a while, like, say something. I don't remember anything that he said when I was actually out there, but I would talk to him, the actor backstage, the guy that controlled it. So he had this remote control, like the, the, it was almost like an, a remote control airplane remote control. And he, that worked the robot. And he was backstage holding this remote control with a microphone, just ready to go at all times. And, uh, one of the guys from Mythbusters made the remote control. Uh, Nakamura, I think is his name. The, I gotta look it up. But, um, anyway, so the whole thing's got a backstory. And it's really interesting about how he just sort of got pulled in to work this robot and it was supposed to be a, a shtick where craig ferguson he wanted the anti-co-host he wanted like the worst possible person on the couch that would just be there was like a lampoon on on how that works but this guy was just so talented and made the funniest jokes all the time that he actually became the best guy on the couch in the history of late night television because he would he would stay out of the way and you could have an interview but then whenever there was like a need for a funny punchline, he'd just pop up and say it and uh it was so good yeah, I don't know how I feel about Andy Richter on Conan. He's just kind of a jovial, you know, yes man. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you got to sort of be out of the way, right? I mean, you've got to allow yourself to disappear so that Conan can have like a one-on-one with somebody. But I remember it was Chris Hardwick who came out. And I don't know, the Chris Hardwick was being interviewed and the skeleton was making fun of him. And they just, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to repeat the jokes because I won't do them justice. And they're even a little politically off. But man, it was funny stuff. You were talking about recurring gags. My favorite one is not actually on Craig Ferguson, although he was my favorite of the late night people. It's Jimmy Kimmel uh, and Paul Rudd. Every time Paul Rudd shows up and he has a film to promote, he plays this clip from this weird 80s E.T. competing film that was terrible with this little alien that falls off a cliff. Right. And they've done it probably 20 times. Yeah, it's just really funny. And he makes Paul Rudd promise he's not going to do it again. Yeah. And then he'll like play an Ant-Man clip and then it will go to this shitty movie. It's, I think it's called like Ed and Me or it's a weird movie. Oh, it's called Mac and Me. Mac and Me. Uh, and that's just so funny to me. I don't know how they keep, I guess he's an actor, but they obviously know that's what's going to happen beforehand. And yet it would be so hard for me to sell as, oh, I'm actually frustrated with this thing that's surprising me, even though I know it's coming. You know? Yeah, it's like the Matt Damon thing where it's like we don't have time to have Matt Damon on the show and then Matt Damon finally snaps. Like he's got a bunch of those where he like has these running gags. And so, yeah, it like Matt Damon's got a few different things out there where he pretends to be a real jerk. Like he really snaps at somebody and like he's auditioning somebody and they're not doing a good job and he just rips into them and just cuts them to the bone. And you're reminded that he's actually quite a good actor because he really comes off as a real jerk. And it's possible that he is a real jerk and they're just capturing it. But the much more likely is that he's in on the joke and he's doing just like the exact exemplary job of of what a jerk would say just like me just like you pretty much the same oh dan okay let's talk a little bit of science oh i forget my thing about spiders now you don't like them right fuck dan this is this always happens (laughs) (laughs) um oh yeah spiders let's talk spiders i don't like them Uh, i don't like how they vomit silk and so when you walk into a spider web not only are you worried a spider's going to attack you and bite you in the face, which nine times out of ten it will? You're literally walking through spider vomit. Disgusting, Dan. I want to put you at ease. It doesn't come out of their mouth. It comes out of their butt. <laughs> spider poop. It's more like spider poop. It's not spider vomit. That would be gross. It comes off of spinnerets, which are attached to this. There's two of them, and they're on their bum. Um, but the thing about spider webs, as you must well know, because you're a science nerd, is that it's got material properties that are quite incredible, and that it, it goes beyond what any human manufactured thread can do. So, like, we make rayon, we make nylon, and we even have silk, which is natural, and like. Sp- Spider silk is way stronger than that. It's got a stronger tensile strength. And if we could make lots of it, we could use it as a material for making not only like bulletproof vests, but like nice clothes and all these things. But um, it would also be biodegradable. So it wouldn't be plastic based or metal based. Like there's all kinds of advantages to potentially using spider silk. But the thing is, spiders don't like to make a lot of it. You can't just put a spider, you know, in our lab and keep pulling web out of their bums. They're just not going to go for that. They just don't like it. And you can't just ask them to spin lots of webs in in a lab, lots of them together because they eat each other. And so then it's a whole problem. (laughs) But the animal that does do something like that is the silkworm. Now, I knew that silk came from silkworms, but I had never looked into the process by which silk is taken from those silkworms. Can I bore you for a second? No, it's wild. I've seen videos of where it's done. Yeah, it's crazy. So if anybody's listening and they don't know this, because I just learned this as I was researching for this story, is that silkworms, they... uh, 
basically it's like just a boring caterpillar of a species of moth that can no longer fly, apparently, because it's been domesticated for so long. 4,000 years they've been making silk out of them so that the adults are only reared in captivity. They can't even fly anymore because of artificial selection. So these caterpillars, they eat a bunch of leaves for a long time and then they go into a cocoon. And their cocoon is this... It's basically one big, long thread that they wrap around themselves, which is silk. And so what the people who are trying to extract silk from them do is take these cocoons and drop them into boiling water and kill the baby inside and then the the caterpillar. And then they tease out that silk and then spin it onto uh, spools. And that's where you get silk from. And it takes a, like, I think uh, the number I saw was something like 10,000 caterpillars to make one silk sari. But uh, anyway... Um, wouldn't it be cool if they could make spider silk? Well, researchers have genetically engineered some caterpillars of that species to, instead of making silk, to make spider thread. And so now these things are producing spools of spider silk, which is way stronger. They're saying, according to their calculations, it's six times stronger than Kevlar. And now they've got this material that they can use to to start making stuff. So it's a very exciting use of genetic technology that I think is... Pretty awesome. So they're like genetically printing somehow these worms. Like, how do you get the spider DNA in the worm? You use some tweezers. How does it all work? It's a micro injection of a whole bunch of eggs. They said over 100,000 eggs they had to micro inject. And what they do is they, they have this CRISPR technology, which what it does is it goes into a body and it finds a DNA sequence that it's looking for and it cuts it. And then it'll paste a new sequence into it. So it's almost like a search and replace on a word processor where it looks for the word dungeon. And every time it sees the word dungeon, it takes that word out and replaces it with spider silk. And so you do that with the DNA of these caterpillars and it takes out the protein that makes their silk and puts in a protein for this spider silk. And so then when the caterpillar grows up, it, it makes the thing it's supposed to make. And to know if it worked, because you can inject into tons of them and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. They also injected a thing that makes their eyes glow red, like the Terminator, if you shine them under certain colors of light. And so the way they knew they had the right caterpillars is they'd like shine a light and only the caterpillars with glowing red eyes were the ones that had successfully received the DNA. So these things not only make spider silk, but they also have glowing red, terrifying eyes. It's it's the beginning of a very scary movie, but it's also very cool. It's reminding me of the Terminator. Yeah, it looks like the Terminator. It it really does. What's going to prevent rogue scientists with just brushing up against you on the street and injecting you with some CRISPR, and then all of a sudden you got red eyes? Nothing. Oh, boy. That's the beauty of CRISPR. And the thing is, like, what you can do with CRISPR is you can, like, let's say... Here's an application of CRISPR that they're trying to do. I told you there's this copy and paste technology. So what they can do is they can take CRISPR and it doesn't paste the new protein. It pastes the CRISPR machine design. And so what ends up happening is that anybody who gets it, their DNA now makes these CRISPR robots that are cut and paste things. And so, so if you get injected with this CRISPR stuff, it'll turn all of your DNA into a CRISPR machine so that any child you have is going to have this new, is going to have two copies of whatever DNA you want, instead of getting one copy from the mom and one copy from the dad, whatever it got from you, it's just going to have that. And so they're using this to try to make mosquitoes resilient to malaria so they can basically put a couple of mosquitoes out into the wild and then pretty soon every single mosquito in the entire population is converted to having the DNA so that it's malaria resistant. But it means that 
not only are you injecting the one that you got, but you're turning the whole population into having it. Sort of like a recursive or self-referential thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like exponential function kind of stuff. It's like you think about how how well COVID spread, where just a couple people had it. But this would be like you get it and then you spread it. But when you spread it, it doesn't just get somebody sick. It changes their DNA. And that's what one of the things you can do with CRISPR. It's called a gene drive. You, once you do it, it's it, there's no going back. And so people are like, that'd be great to get rid of malaria, but... What if something unintended happens? Like, what if the DNA jumps from mosquitoes to people? Or what if uh, it it turns out that it changes something else fundamental about their DNA that we need to change back and now we can't? Like, what do you do? Yeah, I think a part of that is just this idea of playing God with DNA. Something bad will happen. It's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But a part of that is, well, this technology can be used on us. It just so happens it's not on mosquitoes. But if you have this sort of catastrophic you spread it to one person, it rewrites their DNA so that their DNA is now a spreading, reprinting DNA. I don't know. It's kind of scary. I normally don't get scared by these fear, uncertainty, and doubt kind of things, but this one, it's a little freaky. So let's say you've got an island off of the coast of New Zealand that's got rats on it and you want to get rid of the rats. Well, you can release a rat with some kind of a genetic time bomb, a ticking time bomb that makes them uh, die at a very young age or makes them infertile or something like that. And you can make it one of these CRISPR things that takes off and sweeps through the whole population and kills every single rat on the island. Theoretically, it would work really well, be really targeted, would only happen to the rats. But what if life finds a way a la Jurassic Park? What if that gets out and somehow it jumps via a virus and gets into a person. And then all of a sudden it swoop, sweeps through the people and we kill all of ourselves. Like there are just really scary repercussions for this stuff that uh, it's so powerful. They could really be effective, but it also, we just don't know all the unknowns. Yeah, but I don't know, a cosmic ray could come and hit a piece of your DNA right now, scramble it so it turns into a CRISPR machine randomly. No. No, it's not going to do that. No. What will happen is if a DNA hits your thing, you pass it on to your kid. And if it doesn't work and it's bad for them, you know, eventually it'll disappear from the population because you'll pass a copy on, your partner will pass on a copy of something else. And then, you know, over time, it'll just drown out. Like it'll disappear. It'll be like dropping uh, some red dye into a big bowl and it'll just eventually fade away. But with this CRISPR stuff, it turns all the other particles into red dye. And so eventually the whole bowl is totally red and there's just no escaping it. But I'm saying a strand of genetic material could randomly mutate so that it, it just happened to be a CRISPR-style piece of genetic material, and that could cause humanity to be wiped out without us actually modifying the DNA. Yeah, the odds of that are pretty low. There's, it would be like more likely an asteroid's going to hit us. Yeah, it's more likely an asteroid's just going to hit us all and, and wipe out our planet. I think that is way more likely than and the random mutation towards a CRISPR machine. My favorite one when people are saying, okay, this, for example, an airplane that you're on might crash or you might die from COVID or whatever. Whatever the scary thing is, as long as it meets the threshold of I am more likely to get stung and killed by killer bees than whatever this horrible outcome is, then I'm usually okay with it. So I guess my question for you is CRISPR destroying all of humanity or you getting stung by killer bees? I think it's more likely that you'll, that we'll all be stung by killer bees. I'm, I don't know, CRISPR. Although CRISPR could be used to modify killer bees to make them extremely killer. Yes, it could be that we're, that CRISPR is used to kill us all via modified killer bees, which would really make it a tie and then we wouldn't know who to pay out. But um, I don't know. The, the thing about CRISPR is that like the technology isn't, it's in the hands of any, like any basic geneticist can do this stuff now. Like it's not that hard to do. And so 
like in there was this rogue scientist in China who made CRISPR human babies, like like modified their DNA. Didn't make the machine that is going to pass it on forever, but took a, a gene that makes them susceptible to HIV and then switched it for a copy that makes them not susceptible to HIV and just to prove that they could do it. They didn't really have the consent of the parents and the scientific community exploded with anger. They were like, whoa, 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 that was, you were not supposed to be just playing with this on humans. Um, and so he went to jail in China and all this stuff. I think he gets out pretty soon, but that that's a whole big part of the story of the history of this stuff is that it does, you can just one actor can just say, you know what? I think I'm going to do this. I would like to get rid of malaria and I'm going to take this into my own hands and I'm not going to get anybody's permission and I'm just going to do it. And then they do it. It's kind of scary. Scary because the, I guess the fear up until now was someone with a home lab could refine uranium and create a bomb. But it turns out refining uranium to make nuclear grade whatever is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, just ask Iran where their centrifuges were infected with a virus and they didn't spin right and they couldn't make bombs for a long time. That's a whole other thing. But now, any, I mean, how easy is it to create a CRISPR thing? It's not, it's, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. I could do it at home with a with a. Well, I don't know that you could do it at home. I, I mean, I've never. I don't know what actual steps go into it, but it's a technology that's being used in labs across the world. Like it's it's the state of the art thing that is used for even for modifying silkworms so that they make spider DNA. Okay. Well, what do I need? An er Erlenmeyer flask? Yes. Get started with an Erlenmeyer flask. You need an Erlenmeyer flask to do science. And you need to fill it with killer bees. Okay. And then you need to put a stopper in there, but the stopper has to be one that doesn't quite fit so that it falls in at some point. And then you're, then you're off to the races. I mean, it's just so funny. This guy, Erlenmeyer, he's like so vain. All he did was come up with a piece of glassware, <laughs> you know? And then like this motherfucker Bunsen. Yeah. It's just a candle. It's a gas. It's a this guy Bunsen burner. Oh, for all of eternity, I want my name immortalized on this basic thing anyone could have invented. They deserve each other. Bunsen and Erlenmeyer. Jerks. You know who I hate even more than that? What? John Venn, the inventor of the Venn diagram. <laughs> what a jerk. What a narcissistic prick. It's two circles and everybody says the Venn diagram. You don't call it Einsteinian relativity. No, I guess you don't, do you? You don't call it Newtonian calculus. No. I mean, there's Newtonian mechanics, but that's a complicated body of physics. Sure. At least make it complicated. You're saying the Venn diagram is too simple a thing. Yeah. Like Nobel, I get it. It's an important peace prize. Whatever. Science. That's named after the guy who invented TNT, isn't it? Isn't that the story behind that? Yeah, yeah. He was upset that he invented a weapon. So he's like, okay, I'll celebrate peace. And didn't make up for it. Man, I'm thinking of two circles here. Maximum amount of credit minimum amount of work in the middle is inventing the Venn diagram. Fuck that guy. Not only that, he was like a kook. He was like into uh, alchemy and all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, astrology. He was a real kook. I researched the guy. But back it up. So you'd researched him and you're, you're saying there'd be two circles and they would overlap and then he would be in the middle would be his name. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just, I'm trying to think, like, it'd be easier for me to sort of picture that if there were set, like a name I could give it just for me, just to get my head around that idea, that concept. <laughs> Maximum amount of narcissism and getting credit for inventions. It, okay, that's one circle. And least amount of work. Those are your two circles. Mm -hmm. And they, they cross over into a football-shaped middle area that says Venn in it. And that, that together is a diagram, but we'll just call that two circles in a football. How about just a circle diagram? A circle diagram. Man, I, I, I got it in for John Venn. He's, he did nothing. 
He did. That is the least amount of contribution to humanity. And I guarantee you someone else had come up with the two overlapping circle diagram before this guy. It's not like the, all of humanity had never thought of, oh, that we invented the circle. We understand the math around the circle, but let's let them overlap. No one, no one had thought of it until then. They figured out the circumference. They figured out pi. I mean, the Greeks figured out pi. Or was it the Romans? I think it was the ancient Babylonians, probably. I don't know. Exactly. These guys are coming up with crazy findings, transcendental numbers. Pi is a very deep concept that we came up with 5,000 years earlier that, you know, describe circles. And no one thought to overlap them? This guy. This guy. I hate this guy. I don't know how I got on this. Oh, yeah. Er Erlenmeyer flask. <laughs> Erlenmeyer. Now you like Erlenmeyer compared to Venn. At least Erlenmeyer has a shape to it that humanity had never seen before. <laughs> a tapering top? Who's thought of that? Nobody. Oh, my God. John Venn. I hate this guy. What year? Well, like, when did John Venn live? 1834 to 1923. I don't think he was into alchemy. But I think he was into astrology. 1830s were a tough time for astronomy because a lot of people were conflating astronomy and astrology. It was a tough time. Yeah. I mean, if you if you had one circle that was astrology and another circle that was astronomy, those two circles were really overlapping in the 1830s when John Venn was born. But nobody was overlapping circles in the 1830s because Venn had yet to break the paradigm <laughs> of circles being in separate places. I hate that guy. Bunsen burner, Erlenmeyer. I'm trying to think like scientific... Or mathematical or statistical things named after people that have no business being named after people. Well, you know, have you ever done a t-test? No, what's that? In statistics, there's something called a t-test. If you have, say you have a bunch of measurements of one population and then another population, you measure the same thing. So like how, uh, how tall all the people are in Canada and then how tall all the people are in the States. And you look at the averages and you look at the, you know, if their averages are slightly different, are they significantly different? You do a t-test for that, but it's called student's t-test. And apparently it's called student's t-test because it's named after somebody who didn't want to get fired as the brewmaster at Guinness for working on math problems in his, while he was supposed to be at work. And so he used a pseudonym and he just called himself student and he made up the t-test, but he didn't use his real name because he was really the brewmaster at Guinness and he didn't want to get fired. Well, that's admirable. It's named after a thing, but he's not getting the credit for it. Right. He doesn't even have his name on there. That's what you should do. The student's t-test as opposed to the Venn. The mark of a great invention, the mark of, of a level of discovery that's a gift to humanity to show why you're really doing things is whether you name it after yourself or not. And you're saying if you don't name it after yourself, you've met the mark. And if you do name it after yourself, it by definition sucks. Yeah. I mean, again, we talk about general special relativity being one of the great findings in physics. We don't call it Einsteinian whatever. No. I mean, Hawking has what? It's called Hawking radiation. Yeah. It's like something to do with black holes emitting what gets sucked in in the form of radiation. Yeah, but that's stupid. That's the stupidest thing about black holes is the one that he named. I don't know. I don't know much about it because I'm not smart. But I will say this. It's not like every day I'm talking about hawking radiation. Every company, every shitty boardroom with every shitty corporate presentation, there's a Venn diagram. Mm. I, I kind of like Venn diagrams. Yeah, but they're just two circle overlapping diagrams. Yeah, I like them. Dan, we should probably end it there. Let's leave it there. Thanks for a great one. Of all the things we've taped together, Dan, this is definitely one of them. Yes, this is easily the most recent. <laughs> the most, most recent. Uh, Dan, if we have a Venn diagram where one circle is people I like and the other circle is you, if we overlap them, there you are in the middle. Thanks, thanks. 
<laughs> right there with John Van. You like that? I do. All right, Dan, have a good day. Thanks for doing the show. As always, will you show up next time after this travesty of a recording? We'll do it again. We, you know what? Next time, I have this idea for a topic. It's a bit of a crazy one. Let's talk about Kevin Bacon. Okay. Let's talk about Kevin Bacon. Woo. Uh, thanks, Dan. All the best. Bye.